Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. Hey, when you're done listening to this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free app. From there, you can find all of our recent message content. Our app is actually the best place to keep up with everything going on at Hope. If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy. Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Those words were spoken by a prophet named Habakkuk about 600 years before Jesus. And Habakkuk lived in an area of Israel called Judah. And as he was writing this book, Babylonians or the Chaldeans um, were invading and destroying his country. And he wasn't Viewing this destruction from far off, he had a front row view uh, of the the destruction. Uh, It was his friends and it was his relatives and it was his family members that were being killed or being enslaved and taken away. And as he took in all of the evil and all the destruction and all the death, his anger and his anguish and his confusion kind of welled up in him to the point where he just explodes and he demands an answer from God. He says, why are you not intervening? Why aren't you doing anything? Why are you just standing by and letting this happen to people that you proclaim to love? And that string of questions begins a really intimate conversation that the prophet has with God about the topic of suffering and evil. And uh, that's the question that we want to speak into today. We can't answer it like the other questions, but we can take some time to speak into it. If God is good, why does he allow so much suffering in the world? If God is all-powerful, if he is all-knowing, and if he is all-loving the way that he says he is, then why in the world does he allow things like murder or cancer or war or starvation or birth defects or natural disasters or abuse? And uh, some of you that sent in this question, you're kind of searching for a philosophical answer. There is something called the moral argument against God, and we'll talk about that briefly. But just from the tone of a lot of the questions that you guys sent in, most of you don't need a philosopher. You really need a pastor. Uh, Some of the hurts that you guys um, expressed were were heart-wrenching, to be honest. Spouses having affairs, um, the sicknesses and even death of children, a long-term illness with no end. Inside. And some of these things that you wrote in about, they happened recently, but some happened decades ago, and you're still feeling the effects of that. So there's many, many people in our church and uh, watching online that wake up with that question of Habakkuk, why, God, why do you allow this? Why didn't you stop that? Do you even care? And so if you're one of the hundreds of people that sent in that question, we want to say thank you. It's a serious question. I want to respond uh, with seriousness and with respect so there won't be very many jokes and stuff today. Um, but if you find yourself asking that question, you should know that you're not alone. Uh, people have been bringing that question to God since we were created. We find person after person in the scriptures who are confused about suffering going to God desperate for an answer. Some are disoriented. 
Uh, Some are desperate, some come with a whole lot of anger and this feeling of having been overlooked or abandoned by God. And what we see in every single case is that not only can God handle those emotions, whatever emotions we throw at him, but he also gives the people, the person asking that question, the answer that he can. The answers that we with our finite minds can understand. But the truth is we don't know the full answer to the question why God would allow suffering. And because we don't know the answer, a lot of people then turn around and say, well, then there can't be one. There can't be a good enough answer for all the suffering, so therefore there can't be a God. That's actually the crux of the moral argument against God. It's usually framed something like this. Um, God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's all-loving. Suffering exists. So either God isn't all-powerful or all-wise, all-knowing, or all-loving. If he was all those things, he would stop it, but he doesn't. Therefore, God, the way that he is presented in the Bible, doesn't exist. Uh, Maybe you've heard this argument in a philosophy course or maybe just in conversations with your neighbors or your coworkers. But the big flaw in this thinking is that if there was an answer to why God allows suffering, then we would know what it is. So the real argument is an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God wouldn't permit suffering to exist without a good enough reason. I can't think of a good enough reason so there isn't one, so God doesn't exist. Well, logically, that argument breaks down. I mean, we're dealing with God here. We're not dealing with human beings. And so by the very nature of him being God, he can have reasons that we don't understand. Like if you have a God that's transcendent enough and powerful enough to be angry at for not intervening, you also have a God who's transcendent enough and powerful enough to have motivations and to have reasons that are far beyond our understanding. But like I said earlier, most of us don't logically object to evil and suffering. It's it's a gut reaction. It's an emotional objection. We look around the world and we see the violence. We see the strong taking advantage of the weak. We're just the fact that our bodies and this whole world is just kind of prone to breaking down over time, we look around and say, this this is not the way things are supposed to be, God. Why don't you fix this? And this was the heart of Habakkuk's question. Now, Habakkuk's not dumb. Um, He knows his Bible. He knows some of the partial reasons that God gives for why suffering exists. We know that sin and evil and suffering entered the world because we human beings allowed it because we chose it. Um, When Adam and Eve stopped trusting God and disobeyed him and struck out on their own, they opened a door that was very, very wide to let sin and evil and suffering in. And God knew that this was a possibility before he even created Adam and Eve. But see, he created Adam and Eve for the purpose of worshiping him. And true worship means that you have the option not to. He didn't create robots. He created people with free will that could choose to worship, that could choose to love, that could choose to obey or not. And apparently that free will, that option was so important that it was worth the possibility that evil entered in. And so now we have human beings who choose not to worship and more human beings, and it just compounds and compounds and compounds to the world that we see today. So now a lot of the suffering that we experience, we experience at the hands of people who have free will that choose to do harm instead of good. The natural disasters that we experience, that's also a consequence of sin. It's the world fighting back at us. And when sin entered the world, so did death. So that's why we experience things like cancer or aneurysms or our bodies just breaking down over time. 
But those are just partial reasons for why suffering exists. They certainly don't explain every single instance of suffering or the big question, why would God create a world in which suffering was even possible? So Habakkuk knew a lot of these partial reasons and he still has an emotional problem with suffering. So he brings it to God and over the course of three chapters, God leads him on a journey that I wanna briefly walk us through. We don't have, to have time to go in depth. I would highly encourage you to read Habakkuk in your own time uh, later today or tomorrow. But during this conversation, God kind of does three things with Habakkuk because Habakkuk's eyes are just on all the suffering and evil. And what God does is he takes his eyes off of that for a moment and he lifts it up to himself, and then he takes that gaze and points it backwards towards God's faithfulness in the past, and lastly, he takes his gaze and points to the future, to eternity. So the first thing that God does is he lifts Habakkuk's eyes upwards to himself so he can be reminded of the God that he's talking to. You see, suffering like nothing else, it brings us face to face with the God of the Bible. And here's the truth. Those of you who have gone through suffering, you know this. Up until a season of suffering, the odds are pretty good that we've been walking around with a view of God that doesn't really match the God of the Bible. What I mean is that what we've probably done is we've taken things that our parents have said about God or we've taken some portions of some sermons that we've heard or a part of our favorite worship songs and we've kind of cobbled together a God that doesn't really exist. He's a God that's all about our momentary comfort and our ease and our momentary happiness. He's a God that, that serves the purpose of our little universe where everything revolves around us. A God whose greatest aim is to fulfill our desires and to make sure that our lives play out the way that we have them planned. And when the real God of the Bible acts differently than the God that we've made up, that's when the crisis happens. That's when this question of why comes up, that's when we really begin to struggle with suffering. That's when we tend to put God in the defendant's chair and we act like judge and we act like jury and we say, why aren't you acting the way that I think you should act? But see, God doesn't want us arguing with an imaginary God, that doesn't do any good. Or even sometimes we're not the ones going through suffering. Sometimes our friends are or our relatives or a coworker and I truly believe this, out of, a, out, of a, out of a clear desire to comfort them, out of a desire to help them, out of a desire to maybe get God off the hook a little bit, we point them to our imaginary God as well. And we say things like, hey, this, this was not in his plan. God never intended this to happen, but he can somehow make it work out in the end. And that's not true. <laughs> That's, that's kind of suggesting that there's this eternal battle between God and Satan, that there's this battle between good and evil, and sometimes God has the upper hand, but sometimes Satan has the upper hand, but God is really good at kind of picking up the pieces of a lost battle and making something good out of it. Like God got dealt a bad hand, but he's gonna use it as best as he can. But listen, that is not the God of Scripture. And my job as a pastor is to make sure that you know the real God because if you don't, when suffering comes, you're not gonna be prepared. So look at how God responds to that string of questions that we read earlier. He really reveals his true nature. He says this in Habakkuk 1.5, look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. He says, Habakkuk, 
You're mad at me and you're asking, why don't you swoop in? Do you know about this? Why don't you stop this? And I'm not doing that because I'm the one allowing it. I know about this and I'm allowing this for a reason. I'm raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. I'm using this evil and this destruction to further my plan for good. There are a million different ways that I'm gonna use this, but listen, this did not catch me off guard. This is not Satan winning a battle. Habakkuk, I don't lose battles. Everything that happens in the universe from the beginning of time until the end, it happens according to my divine plan. And I know that's hard. That's hard to wrap your mind around, but that's the first thing that you have to grasp. And we see this all over the Bible. And I want you to listen just to a few verses because this is not something you're gonna get exposed to regularly on Caleb or some of the podcasts that, that we listen to. So it's so important to hear this. Isaiah has the same sort of argument with God. Another nation's invading Israel. There's death, there's destruction. God, why aren't you stopping this? And look at what he says to Isaiah. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these things. It's according to my will, Isaiah. Moses was born with a stutter, a birth defect, you could call it. And so he was arguing with God, God, you can't send me to Pharaoh. I don't have the skills necessary. And God responds, hey, Moses, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? I do. Who makes him deaf? I do. Who makes him seeing? I do. Who makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? One time Jesus is about to heal a man born blind and the Jewish people around say he's blind because of the sin of his parents and Jesus rebukes him and says, no, 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 he's not blind because of their sin, he's blind for the glory of God because I planned this out. And we see example and example of this so much so that the psalmist in Psalm 135 kind of summarizes it and says this, for I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all the deeps. So God says, back, I know that you can't understand this and I know it seems crazy to think that sometimes I will allow what I hate to accomplish what I love, but I do. But don't for a second think that I'm caught off guard by this or that I'm powerless to stop it. No, no, no. I work all things according to my plan. And I know that you can't help questioning me sometimes. I know this critical spirit arises in the hearts of humans often, but look at what he says to Isaiah. He says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Or you're doing a bad job? God says, I know you want to question me sometimes and criticize the way that I'm running the universe, but just like a pot can, can never comprehend the purposes of the potter. So, so you, as a human, a finite created being, can't begin to understand how all of this works out, how all of history fits together. And so when we feel that question or that accusation start to rise in our hearts, why would a good God allow suffering? The first thing we need to do is look up. And the first thing that we realize is that we are dealing with someone who's infinite and we're not. We're dealing with someone who is all wise and we're not. We're dealing with someone who is the center of history and we aren't. And that creates a certain sense of humility. Uh, Philip Yancey writes this. He says, in the 70 years, we can develop a host of ideas about how indifferent God appears to be about suffering. 
But is it reasonable to judge God and his plan for the universe by the swatch of time we spend on earth? Have we missed the perspective of the timelessness of the universe? Who would complain if God allowed one hour of suffering and an entire lifetime of comfort? And yet we bitterly complain about a lifetime that includes suffering when that lifetime is a mere hour of eternity. Next time you want to cry out to God in anguish, despair, blaming him for a miserable world, remember less than one millionth of the evidence has been presented. So we look up. And even though we don't get the final answer of why God allows suffering, we do learn what the answer is not. It's not because he's not all-powerful, and it's not because he's not all-wise. He is. And so Habakkuk takes this in. He actually says explicitly, okay, you ordained this. This fits in according to your plan. You're going to use this to discipline us and mature us. You're somehow going to work good out of this. But he still has a hard time accepting this, and he kind of questions. He says, well, I just have to ask, are you, are you at least moved by this? Like when you see people, like your people, being killed and people dying and suffering, are you just playing like a cosmic game of checkers or are you moved by this? Are you present with us? Do you care? Do you care? And to answer that question, God focuses Habakkuk's attention to the past, to all the ways that God has proved he does care and proved his loving kindness and proved his faithfulness all throughout the Old Testament. But for us, the ultimate proof that God cares is what? It's the cross. We look back to the cross. And in the cross, we have undeniable proof of a God that cares deeply about the pain and the suffering that we experience in the world. I mean, when you look back about, uh, and see what Jesus experienced, I mean, he came into the world that we broke. He experienced what it was like to be human in a world of pain. And then his death, it was no ordinary death. His body, his physical body was literally beaten and crushed. He died of asphyxiation. And then relationally, he was humiliated. He was stabbed in the back. He was abandoned by every single person that proclaimed to love him. And then on top of all that, as he was on the cross and became the living embodiment of sin on our behalf, he was separated from, abandoned by his heavenly father. He was, he was ripped away from the presence of the Father that he had known for eternity. Like his 30-something short years here on earth, it was filled to the brim with suffering. And then you have to ask the question, why? What made him do that? Why did he go through all of that? Hebrews says it's because the joy set before him, he was able to endure the cross. And he asked, well, what, what is that joy? Was he able to endure because he knew that he would escape this broken world and be back in the presence with his father shortly? No, he had all of that. He left all of that for something else. You know what that joy was? It was you. And it was me. The joy set before him was us. He was willing to leave his father, to move into a suffering world, to undergo all this pain and evil, all so that he could rescue out of it one day. He did all of that because he cares. So when you start thinking, man, he's indifferent, he doesn't care, he's different, he doesn't care at all about this suffering, you look back at the cross and you realize, no, 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 he's, he came and suffered more than any other human being so that one day he could end suffering. He hates evil so much that he gave his life so that he could end all evil without ending us, you see? 
So when you start to doubt God's goodness because of the pain that you've endured, you got to look back at the cross. And listen, when you do that, all doubts about the Father are silenced in the Son. Dorothy Sayers says this, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and he's played fair. And again, by looking back, we still don't get the ultimate answer to the question, why does God allow suffering? But we learn something else that it can't be. It can't be because he doesn't care. But then God does one more thing with Habakkuk and he points his attention not up or backwards, but he points it forward. And he says this in Habakkuk 2, he says, this vision or the ultimate answer to the question that you're searching for, that's for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently. For it'll surely take place. It will not be delayed. He says, Habakkuk, you can't fully understand the answer to that question in the here and now, but one day you will. One day you will. And that's what the Bible says, that one day when Jesus comes back and he creates the new heavens and the new earth, you'll finally get the answer that you've been searching for. And we're gonna go really deep into this in two weeks when we talk about what happens after we die. But for today, the truth, the reality of eternity, it kind of shows us two things. First, evil will not go unpunished. Evil people will not get off scot-free. Just because God uses evil people to accomplish his will doesn't mean that they're gonna get away with it. Those who cause suffering and death outside of Christ, they're gonna have to give an account. There will be a final judgment and there is a real eternal place called hell. And so evil and suffering, it's not gonna be a part of eternity. It's not gonna last for eternity. It will be judged. It's gonna be removed from our experience. But when that day comes, the Bible says that not only will we understand the logical reasons for why God allowed or permitted suffering as a whole, but we're also, in a really profound way, um, understand the reasons behind our individual experiences of pain and suffering. Now hang with me, because I'm gonna attempt to explain verses that I don't fully understand myself. Um, but most of us think of heaven as like a compensation for the pain that we've experienced here on earth. Um, like God says, hey, sorry about that cancer, sorry about that death, here's a mansion to make up for it, right? And, and partly that's true. Like Paul says in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Like heaven will somehow make up for the pain and what we lost here on earth, but we'll actually experience something more than that. The Bible kind of hints at that, that heaven won't just be a compensation for the suffering that you and I have experienced. It'll actually be a justification of our suffering. Like we won't just be able to overlook it or forget about it. We'll actually understand why it was needed. We'll understand why it had to happen. Paul says this, it's crazy, in 2 Corinthians, he says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. And then he says this, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. Our troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
So like, yeah, our joy in heaven is gonna outweigh any amount of pain and suffering that we experience here on earth, but somehow, some way, that very pain that we are experiencing now is achieving for us a greater joy in heaven. Like in eternity, we'll look back on what we suffered on earth and we'll see that it adds to our eternal joy. It somehow serves our joy. We won't just overlook it, but somehow, some way, we'll actually be thankful that God allowed it, that it couldn't have been any other way. Tim Keller tells a story about a nightmare that he had one time where uh, Tim Keller's a pastor up in New York and an author, and uh, during this nightmare, he lost his wife and all of his kids. They were murdered, they were killed. Really horrific nightmare, and he said that he woke up at 3 a.m. just sweating and yelling, but in that moment when he sat up on bed, he actually realized, well, they weren't dead. He hadn't lost his family. And he said in that moment, he was just overcome with love and thankfulness and he wanted to rush through the house and shake them all awake and hug them and kiss them and tell them how much he loved them. He had lost them, but now he had them back again. And Tim Keller writes, he said, here's the point. The joy of finding them wasn't in joy in spite of the nightmare, but a joy enhanced by the nightmare. Because of the nightmare, my joy was intensified. I don't fully understand it, but somehow we won't just be compensated, but what we go through here in eternity will be justified. I want to read you in closing a story of a lady named Tess, and uh, she lives in New York, and um, her story just ties all of this together in a way that I can't. It's kind of long and drawn out, but I need you to stick with me. It's super powerful. She says this, my crisis of faith occurred early in adulthood, uh, detached from any significant personal suffering. In my training to be a physician, I had participated in the care of untold numbers of tragedies. Seven-year-olds being thrown from pickup trucks, fatal automobile accidents, 25-year-olds diagnosed with breast cancer, heart attacks on Christmas Day. I had seen a lot, I had treated a lot, and as I wrestled with these challenging circumstances, working through them with my husband, our faith had been tested. God increased our faith such that we trusted him even if we didn't understand him. And over the next several years, as my understanding of the complexities of human physiology grew, I began to develop more and more amazement that anything in the human body ever went right. How any baby was born without, uh, without birth defects was a miracle. How uh, we could continue to breathe and digest and fight cancer while sleeping was a marvel. The idea of nature being a very delicate very tenuous balance all by the sheer grace of God was driven home to me almost on a daily basis. So the idea of pain and suffering occurring and people asking the question, why me? That was not a part of our story. More the question became, why not me? What did I do to deserve this unmerited string of unbroken blessing? In August, 2012, we welcomed our third boy in three years. And our oldest child turned age uh, three, six weeks later, and then 14 weeks later on a beautiful and mild November afternoon, I returned home from work into the blissful chaos of our home just when our nanny was waking our baby up from his nap. Her screams of terror took several seconds to penetrate my consciousness. I walked into our bedroom knowing exactly what had happened. I knew he had died before I laid eyes on him. And my very first thought was Job 121, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Followed closely by 1 Thessalonians 5, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. 
all the years of training combined with the incredible power of the Holy Spirit to equip you with exactly what you need when you need it came over me and I was on the phone with my husband at that time and I told him Wyatt had died and he needed to come home immediately. I performed CPR while on the speakerphone with 911 but I knew it was just a formality. Police and detectives came and went. They ruled out homicide and the medical examiner's officer arrived to take my baby's body but I refused. I was not giving up my baby without a fight or at least an argument with God. I knew what he said about asking, receiving, and not receiving because we don't ask. And the widow who annoys the judge enough to wear him down and grant her request and faith the size of a mustard seed. So for one hour, my husband and I, along with our nanny, prayed for resurrection over our son. Actual physical resurrection like Lazarus. We went to the throne of God boldly, completely lucid, not grief-stricken, and asked as forthrightly as we could to give us back our baby. Not my will, but yours be done. Well, God heard our prayer, and he said no. And I told him, okay, but you're going to have to get us through this because we can't do this ourselves. In the end, the death was positional asphyxia, or SID, sudden infant death syndrome. He wasn't even sick. But the end hasn't been written. The Lord has shown us over and over, over again how he never intended for us to go through this alone. He gave us himself, and he gave us the body of Christ the morning after Wyatt died, two of our friends showed up without calling to look after our two other children. Our church community mobilized an army of prayer warriors and help warriors. Meals were sent. Our families were flown in from all over the country and the world. People gave up their apartments for our families, rented apartments down the block, delivered meals to our nanny in Brooklyn, planned and executed the memorial service, printed bulletins. Every single last detail was taken care of with precision and excellence and all without our knowledge or consent. And so we were allowed to descend to the very depths of our grief and experience it in all of its agony and emerge on the other side. And when we emerged, our community had been transformed in unity through suffering and we were pregnant. So the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Our pastor once said that God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. The idea that the Prince of Heaven would empty himself and become poor to live and dwell among us is humbling. The idea that there's nothing in the human experience that God himself has not suffered, even losing a child is sustaining. And the idea that in his resurrection, Jesus' scars became his glory is empowering. God will use these scars for his glory as they become our glory. Indeed, the end has not been written. I don't know the suffering that, that you've been through. I don't know the battles, the war fields that you've come in off of at one of our campuses or watching online. And I wish <laughs> that I could give you just one short sentence, just a nice, easy, tidy truth that would explain away every single experience of suffering and pain that you've had in your life, but I can't. We don't know that answer. But I can tell you with absolute certainty that you can trust the God that does know. We know his heart. And despite what you may think about him or, or tell him in the moments of anger and confusion, he is faithful and he is powerful and he is present. And when you weep, he weeps. 
And when you feel anguish, he feels it. In fact, he feels it more. And he sent his only son so that he could end it one day. But until that day, we, we just have to wait. And so I can't offer you a single thought or a single truth or a single answer that you can hold on to during that wait. But what I can absolutely offer you is a, lovely, a loving Heavenly Father that wants nothing more than to draw close to you during the season. And so if that's something that you want to talk more about or you're interested in, I'd encourage you to talk to a pastor online or at one of our campuses. But for now, let's pray. Father, I pray that um, old wounds would be healed right now. That may be people that were keeping you at a distance for years and years and years because of something that they couldn't explain, that they would they'd turn and they'd walk back towards you. Father, I pray that you would, you would heal, that you would build up, that you would comfort. Father, if there's anything that I said that's not true here today, I pray that it would be forgotten forever. <laughs> but if there's anything that was in accordance with your word, would you do with it what only you can do? So we love you. We praise you. But more than that, we trust you. We trust you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.